Good evening. It's good to be with you. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we've considered Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, this, uh, as we've had opportunity to do so this summer, we've considered it under the theme that God preserves those that he calls to salvation by sanctifying them. God strengthens us and brings us to glory on the path of progressive sanctification. And we considered, especially in the setting that these people were in after Paul is chased off and he wasn't able to finish uh, establishing them in the truth, Paul was concerned for them. He was interested in getting back to see them, to imparting to them what would complete their faith, as he says. And since he's not able to do that, God hadn't opened the door. He actually says the devil opposed us. Uh, he writes them a letter just a few cities away, uh, probably just a few weeks after, if you want to read Acts chapter 17, I believe. Just a few weeks probably after he's been chased off. This is probably one of the first letters in the New Testament to be written. Paul is writing to uh, new Christians in a godless city to see them established in holiness, to see them growing in likeness to Jesus Christ, because that is the only way they will be able to stand against the pressures that are coming against them. And it seems in the first three chapters that the pressure that he has in mind is the pressure of opposition to their faith that they were probably experiencing from those in their city that uh, had opposed Paul and chased him off. But then, as we had an opportunity a few weeks ago uh, to turn to chapter 4, you see there the word, finally, then. Uh, He makes a major transition, and he turns to another topic. And I've heard people say that in Paul's letters, it's a great... um, It's a great comfort to pastors that he can say finally or therefore and then go on for a couple more pages. Uh, So we won't do that tonight. But Paul does do that. He says finally, but he turns to exhorting them from from encouraging them about their faith to exhorting them about their faith. And we began to see last time under the title, An Excellent Christian Lifestyle, as we'll read. We'll read uh, the first eight verses. Paul gives them an exhortation to abound in holiness in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, he starts to warn them to refrain from immorality. Uh, This is an exhortation in the first few verses addressed to the will to abound in holiness. Of course, we need God to be at work in our hearts, but we must uh, actively put ourselves in the way of his work because he says that you excel still more. This is something we need to become proficient at. We need to have our lives characterized by growth in Christlikeness. Walking in the Spirit. This is God's will, he says, that each Christian would continually be sanctified, that they would be becoming more like Jesus Christ, more in in their practice, like what God has already made them. And at salvation, when he justified them and sanctified them in in a moment in time, that they would increasingly become set apart to God for his special use. But immediately, he turns from exhorting to warning, and that's our text for this morning, this evening, a sober warning, starting in verse 3, about sexual immorality. Sanctification touches very directly on this. Let's read, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. 
For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, as Paul is exhorting them to pursue holiness and excel in holiness, make it the pursuit of their lives... He touches on sexual morality. Sanctification touches very directly on this. Sexual sin, I believe Paul is saying, is one of the most sure ways to derail growth in sanctification. And if you think about the Thessalonians, in Greco-Roman culture, a main city, a port city, along one of the major Roman roads, a prominent city in the empire, they had access to all sorts of Roman culture, coming straight down the road from the capital. This was also a society, if you study Roman history, even if there are parallels to our own, this is a society that didn't have any kind of influence of Christian values on their laws or on their institutions. This was godless and pagan from its roots. Do you think that was all around them? Of course it was. It's all around us. They had never, many of these people hadn't grown up with the influence of Judaism. They didn't know God's law in their background. They didn't have any really well-established sexual morals. And therefore, for these new believers, one of the main things that is standing against their faith is the temptation to sexual sin. And you can see right there uh, in Paul's exhortation to them how important this is even for us today. Maybe 50, 60 years ago, this wouldn't have been so much on the surface of our culture. But today, it's right out in the open. It's in the news. It's on TV. It is everywhere. And we would do well to give heed to God's word here. This is a sober warning to avoid sexual sin. And Paul, in giving this warning, I believe he gives three explanations of what he means. What what does sanctification require? What does it include? And then he gives three arguments to really press it home on their consciences and and give them motivation to do what he's calling them to do. So what does sanctification require? God's will is that his people would be sanctified, that they would be growing in Christ-likeness. What does that include? Well, first, in verse 3, sanctification requires purposeful abstinence from sexual sin. For this is the will of God, he says, your sanctification, or to abstain you from, from fornication. He puts an emphasis on you in the, in the sentence here to highlight that every person is responsible to do this. Every person needs to do this. And he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sometimes you hear this word. It's not a word necessarily we use a lot, but when you're voting... Yes, no, abstain, maybe. The word here, the Greek word, 
has the idea of staying far away from it, distancing yourself from sexual immorality, steering clear of it. Uh, this word in the New Testament is translated to convey, uh, is used to convey physical distance, like a boat was far off from the shore. Or when the prodigal son is coming home, when he was far off, his father saw him and ran to him. There's physical distance. This word is used to convey that. But this word is often used in, in, a, in a verse that's used all over Scripture to convey like emotional or, or relational distance. When Jesus says, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah, they draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. They're coming near in a certain sense, but there's not really any substance to it. They're hypocrites. There's distance there. It's said of Job in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word is used that Job feared God and turned his foot from evil. He steered clear of it. And what is it that Paul says to steer clear of? Sexual immorality, fornication. The word is the porneia, is the Greek word. If you want an example of this, I believe Joseph is a very, Joseph in the Old Testament is a very vivid example of steering clear of sexual immorality. He was well trusted by his boss, Potiphar. And he's going about his business, and Potiphar's wife is an ungodly, immoral woman, and she's making advances on him day after day, and eventually she catches him. No one al- he's alone in the house, and what does he do? He runs away. He flees. Immorality. This word speaks to any illicit sexual thoughts or behavior. Anything that's out of God's bounds. And we could, of course, our, our, even our language is full of words that we assign to this. Adultery, premarital sexual relationships, homosexuality, pornography, promiscuity, prostitution, seduction. And we could make a whole list. But those are just the acts, right? Jesus says that it's not just the actions of a person. If a man looks on a woman, to lust after her in his heart. He's committed adultery with her in his heart. Fantasizing, planning, desiring, looking, thinking, wanting, enjoying sex in any way outside of God's bounds. That's what Paul is talking about. And of course, that includes our words, coarse jokes, any kind of lewdness. That has no part for a Christian. These are all sins that God condemns if we won't take the time, but don't be deceived, Paul writes in Ephesians. People who commit these things, and there's a whole list that he gives, will not inherit the kingdom of God. God will judge these. And Paul is saying there, and he's saying here, this has no place in a Christian's life. It's a very serious thing. Of course, God did design uh, sexuality as something very good, a very good gift to be enjoyed only within the boundaries of marriage, and he wants his children to enjoy his good gifts But isn't it often true that the devil loves to counterfeit God's best gifts and twist them and use them for terrible purposes to snare men and enslave them? Anywhere else outside of that boundary, that relationship between one man and one woman, that's immorality. And Paul says, steer clear of it. This is God's will for you. Whatever your situation is in life, and this is for married people and unmarried people, right? 
there are clear implications of this word and this command for all of us. And I think if we're bringing it down to our day, we have to understand that our culture is saturated with this, isn't it? We have a very immoral culture. And I'm reading a book right now on spectacles and how we live in an age of the spectacle and everything is monetized to catch our eyeballs. Our eyeballs are the commodity that everybody is going after on TV, on the internet, in media, and the people who are making those and trying to get your money, they know that sex gets that. It will get your eyes and it will keep it. And it's hard to escape the kind of immorality that we live among because it's everywhere. But we do have choices in the matter, don't we? We have choices. And we should understand that this is, this is of the devil. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And doesn't he devour many men and women with this sin? So if we're going to make application to ourselves, certainly we can apply this to what we're seeing, what we're purposely looking at, choosing to look at in TV, in movies, in social media, on the internet, on YouTube, on whatever. Certainly things that are explicit. We have no business looking at that. But even, even the implications of immorality, that shouldn't be something that we're choosing. We ought not to do that if we're going to be growing in holiness. We should steer clear of it. But then, of course, in our conduct, that's not just in our minds, in what we're doing. We ought to steer clear of immorality. Take preventative measures to avoid immorality. To guard your eyes, to guard yourself. Maybe get an accountability partner. Maybe get accountability software. Have relationships of people who are helping you. And then... I say this because the passage brings it up. If this is anything that anyone is into, of course, we ought to repent of sin. Come back to the Lord and get help. Take drastic measures. It's better to go into eternity without an eye, right? Jesus said. So there's certainly application to what we're seeing in our media, our digital visual age, to what we're doing But I think there's also something to be said about the addictive nature of this. And I'll just say that immorality thrives in the darkness. That's why I say get help. Because the devil wields the the weapon of shame ruthlessly. And he will keep people cut off from the help that they need because they're ashamed Paul wrote in Ephesians, do not participate in these deeds of darkness. Instead, expose them. There's something life-saving about having our sin exposed. And if that's where you are, may the Lord do that. I trust you will get the help that you need and that God can give you. God has broken the power of sin, hasn't he? God ministers through the body. He builds his own people up. And I know my desire and pastor's desire is to present every man mature in Christ. Um, And this is part of it. That's what Paul is writing about. This is the will of God, your sanctification. He's laboring to see them grow in Christ. Step number one, avoid immorality. Purposeful abstinence. 
steering far clear of it because it will snare you and it will derail all of your growth. So it includes this choice to avoid and may the Lord help us. But sanctification also includes what Paul says next, I believe, is self-knowledge and self-mastery. You see what he says in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And you may have a footnote there, body or wife. Some people have interpreted it in different ways, and we'll get to that. But he's saying to know, it's, it's emphasis on knowing yourself, each of you, his own vessel to, to get control over it in holiness and honor. And again, he's laying emphasis on each individual. Every person in the church needs to hear this, he's saying. He's written to them all as a group, and now every person needs to hear this. You need to know something. There's part of our sanctification that includes experience and proficiency. You don't go into your first day of your job and know exactly how to do everything. You have to learn it. You have to know the ropes, right? That's why we call it progressive sanctification. It takes time and practice to learn and to know and to come to have a real understanding with with regard to, what he says, how to possess your own vessel, how to acquire it is the sense of the word, how to procure it by any means. And he's speaking about your body, your vessel, perhaps even more specifically, the parts of your body most associated with immorality. Some have interpreted the word that specifically. This word, how to possess, it's like someone purchasing something, like a a valuable piece of property, like we heard these ones selling a piece of property, someone acquiring a piece of property, or in the day of the Thessalonians, someone purchasing Roman citizenship for a great price. They acquired it. The idea is to, to own it, to have sovereignty over it, to get control of it. You've maybe heard of this popular tagline in various places, own it. I know I heard that a lot in a previous job that I had. Maybe it's kind of a college age thing. Maybe you heard it in your workplace. I don't know. Companies want you to own your space, right? Own it. They want you to own responsibility. Maybe take ownership of your health. Maybe you've heard some health plan say that. Be in charge of it. Take responsibility for it. Treat it like it all depends on you. Treat it like it's your property. Or... Maybe in the case of what Paul's talking about here, perhaps better, treat it like it's someone else's property who's really important to you. Because that's what it is, right? Acquire your vessel. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, Paul says. And that's what he's talking about. Your vessel, your whole person, any part of us with which we might sin and be immoral. That includes our eyes and our ears, Of course, our body parts, our minds, our desires, our thoughts, what we are putting in front of our eyes, what we're thinking about, what we're having run around in our head, our emotions, our feelings, our passions towards other people and experiences, those things that are a part of you, even if they're just going on inside of your head and your heart. As Christians who are seeking to be sanctified, We must have a knowledge of and a control over our bodies, our members, as Paul says in another place. All of the faculties that we have. In order, he says, that we might possess them and rule them, not in immorality, but in sanctification and honor. In holiness and dignity 
and value. This is to rule yourself for God's special use. It's to master your own desires and your own thoughts and actions, not for something that's degrading and dehumanizing and sinful, but as though it it were valuable and worth guarding and protecting for that special use for God. As I thought about a vessel, a container, I thought about this little box that I was given when I was young. It was like a little octagonal wicker box that my friend gave to me, and I kept my special kid treasures in them. Maybe you had this when you were a kid, or maybe I'm really just that weird. I had this little little uh, stress ball, soccer ball, that was yellowed and terrible. I should have thrown it away, but I loved it. Maybe, maybe one of my siblings gave it to me. I don't remember. I had this little car, this little Hot Wheels car. It was a convertible, and I thought it was cool. I had a little pencil sharpener that uh, my, one of my, someone I admired gave to me. I think some, some foreign coinage that my sisters had gotten for me from a different place. And I kept it safe. And I knew where that little box was all the time. I would pull it out on special occasions. I mostly just kind of delighted in those things, those memories, those treasures that I had. And I exercised a good deal of oversight over those things. And you understand what this is like with a little kid, right? Sometimes they're a little selfish about this. But I was protective. I had a kind of sovereignty over that little box. And I preserved it for special purposes, all my own. I treated it with great value. It mattered who looked in there or who moved it or or where it was. It mattered to me. I owned it. What Paul is saying is that Christians need to have this kind of knowledge of themselves and this kind of ownership and control over themselves and their appetites and their thoughts and their words and their eyes and their behavior to protect it from the intrusion of sexual immorality because that's what will defile it for God's use. And he contrasts this in the next verse with people who don't know God, people who are slaves of their own desires and feelings and lusts, not, verse 5, in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, not in the, in the heat or the pressure of the things that you crave. If you think about Samson, actually, and Delilah, Samson was a man ruled by everything that he felt and wanted. He saw a woman and he had to have her. He saw this and he had to have it. Delilah, when she's trying to persuade Samson to to tell her, she's just ruled by what she wants. This kind of person is ruled by the heat of their desires, what they think or they see or is just suggested to them. It, it, It rises up within them as something that they can't do without. And then it just consumes them and overtakes them and it enslaves them. They're, they're powerless against their own fleshly lusts. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Not like people who don't have the knowledge of God unto salvation. Don't conduct yourselves, he says, like unbelievers who are slaves to the world, to their flesh, to the devil. They can't do anything but serve themselves. Unbelievers don't have the ability to resist their sinful flesh. And even some of these crazy military guys who just love pain just for fun, right? And they can just, they have total self-mastery over themselves and over their appetites, 
they're still ultimately slaves to sin if they're not in Christ because it's all about them. It's not about God. They're not doing that in service to God. It's only when God breaks the power of all sin in a person's life. And he brings them to life and he sets them in right relationship to him. That that person, that a Christian, can begin to truly live a life of uprightness and holiness, pleasing to God, not in lustful passion. Of course, that's not sinless immediately. That's not immediately having victory, rather, over sin or perfectly victorious all the time, but it's growing in victory over sin, which has perhaps held sway for many years. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Isn't this a worldly way of thinking, being ruled by your desires? The world literally advertises that we ought to cater to our desires and our wants and our impulses. Because the world that we live in is enslaved to those things. Just do what feels right, right? How many, even kids' movies, have you watched that tell you just to do whatever you feel like doing? This is a worldly way of thinking. And the world wants to press Christians into its mold, doesn't it? Do not be conformed to this world. Avoid it. Abstain from it, Paul says. But it's also helpful to have this applied to ourselves on knowing ourselves. We need to know ourselves, and we need to be honest with ourselves and with God about ourselves on what he says about us. We're never going to be helped by denying reality, denying that we struggle with sin, denying that we have a sinful flesh that, that does have things that we want. Part of the blessing of a mind that's enlightened by the Spirit is... That, that we can say, God, you, you have made me this way, and I do have a sinful flesh, and I need your help. We can acknowledge these things and then get the help that we need, that God says that we need. So do you know where you're weak? Are you honest with yourself about that? Do you know what, what stirs up your sinful desires and tends to lure you in? I heard someone use the phrase, people have uh, designer lusts. They have things that are just tailor-made for them. It's not the same for everybody. Do you know where you're weak? Do you know certain situations that present you with opportunities to sin that you need to avoid? Paul says that you would know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. There are things that you need to understand and learn. Are you learning them? But then in all of this, in gaining mastery over ourselves, we ought to also acknowledge that isn't it the fruit of the Spirit? that does this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What does the Spirit produce in us? Self-control. We can't do this. This is, why, this is another reason why unbelievers can't ultimately do this without the Spirit of God because God is the one who produces this in us and we need God's help. And in all of this, I would, I would urge you to turn to the Lord. God wants his people to turn from sin. God wants his people to avoid sin. This is God's will. Are you ever wondering, what is God's will for my life? Well, here it is, plain and simple, in black and white, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Are you doing God's will in that way? 
You must seek him. You need his help for this. I need his help for this. We'll have to consider the rest at another time. But just for your encouragement, if, if this is really hitting home with you, an illustration that I heard once, maybe you feel like, you know, I know that I need to do this, but I just feel like I can't. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I'm just crushed by the, the power that my flesh has. I heard someone use the illustration of being on the river. Maybe you've kayaked the Cuyahoga River or something. I think about it a lot when I'm, I've got a jogging route that I go over the river a couple times. It's really peaceful, right? Maybe a fish jumps out and it splashes, but there's not really anything going on on top of the surface. And if you're kayaking, maybe you're doing float the river and you're going down the river, it's really nice when you're going with the stream, right? But then you lose something off on the side and you have to turn around and you go upstream. And you realize all along what's been underneath the surface, that current. That current you didn't realize was helping you. Now you're going against it. And you don't feel like you can do it. Everything is, is moving against the grace that God is trying to work in your life. Maybe you've lived according to your flesh for many years and it feels impossible. And if that's where you are, I, I would just encourage you, maybe this is just the first time you've turned upstream. And that does feel like an overwhelming thing, but the word is true. This is the will of God. And God will help you. He is, as Paul says later, the one who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And as we walk in the Spirit and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, make its home in us abundantly, and we walk in the Spirit, the Lord will help us have victory over sin. May the Lord help us to abstain from sexual immorality. And may the Lord help us to know ourselves and how to possess our bodies in holiness and in honor for his use. This isn't just to keep for ourselves, but that we would be instruments of righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 6. Present yourselves and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. We're, we're set apart for his use. This is why he saved us. And when he breaks the power of sin over us, We have all the help that we need. May the Lord help us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, this is a sober warning for all of us, and particularly in our day. It's always been around, but we're bombarded with immorality at every turn, it seems. And we know that in our own flesh, there is a a traitor that uh, cries out for that. Lord, help us to fear you. Help us to seek you. Help us to be on our knees before you. Lord Jesus, you taught your disciples to pray. uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in immorality, there is great evil, and there is great destruction, and the devil would love to ruin. So we ask that you would deliver us. If there are any here who are in sin, particularly unrepentant sin, I pray that you would work in hearts, and use the sober warning and the arguments that Paul turns to next, that you are the avenger. And this is the purpose of our salvation and tied up in why you call us, call us out of darkness, so that we may live in the light for your glory. Lord, we need your help. This world is no friend to grace. But we know that you will bring us to glory, and that's our great confidence, that you our God and Father 
will establish our hearts without blame in holiness before you until Jesus comes. We, we look to that. We cling to that promise. We need that because without it, we would be without hope. Lord, give us protection. Help us to walk with you this week and, and to fear you and to love you and to be in the word and to be walking in the spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.